Heavenly Father, thank you again for this blessed time of worship. It is such a joy, God, to be together with the saints, to sing praises to you, to consider your worth, your greatness, your majesty, your creatorship, and your love. Thank you, God, that we get to have this time in your word now as we continue in Genesis. And I just pray uh, blessing, encouragement, edification for all who are here and all who are listening online. We lift up Christ and ask you to, to speak to us today in his name. Amen. All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 9, and this is Catastrophe, part 8. And we are actually in part 25 of, uh, in our whole series in God's story of beginnings. And we saw last week from the beginning of chapter 9 that God is a providing and protecting God, one who holds all life to be valuable. And so he has some new things for this new post-flood era, this new dispensation, knowing that sin and corruption will soon arise again. That was kind of the theme from last week. And we saw that God considers all life that he creates to be sacred, especially human life, because man is made in God's own image. So he blesses man with the creation mandate. He provides, he protects by giving food and enacting his requirement to protect human life. So life is blessed, as we saw, and it's safeguarded in this great reset, so to speak, after the flood. Animals, being generally in fear of humans now, are not a danger to human life. The danger of fellow man to other men is mitigated by God's law of capital punishment. Life for a life punishment must be commensurate with the crime, which, by the way, also helps with the human tendency for, for vengeance, right? And the way it works is that one tribe or one family kills someone from another family or tribe, And so this family or tribe wants to kill two of the others. Then two becomes four, and four becomes eight, and it becomes this whole bloody barbaric war, right? So apart from God and God's law, that's the human depraved heart, and this is the violence and hatred and wickedness that was happening before the flood. And so the animal threat is dealt with. The human threat is dealt with. There's one more threat to deal with now, and who might that be? but God himself, remember, God just annihilated the entire population of the globe, of the whole planet, except for eight people, along with all the animals and catastrophic destruction upon the entire earth. So in a sense, God himself is the ultimate threat, so to speak, to life on the planet. So what does God do? Well, he makes a covenant promise. And he wraps up this section of catastrophe with a bow, a rainbow, that is. The theme today is that God promises to preserve his creation. God promises to preserve his creation and all life on earth. And our text is continuing in Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17. And the title is The Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant. And Genesis 9, verse 8 through 17 is where the covenant with Noah is found. So if you are able to stand with me, I'm going to read the text for this morning as we honor God's word. Genesis 9, starting in verse 8, and we're going to verse 17 this morning. 
Verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant, which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you, for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Please be seated. So we have two main straightforward points today. And we're going to draw out some applications along the way and see God and his character once again today as we draw out those applications But the first point, as we consider the theme that God promises to preserve his creation, is verses 8 through 11, simply God's covenant in your bulletin there. There's a blank there. The blank is covenant. In verse 8, we see that God speaks again to Noah and his sons. So the the chapter started in verse 1 with God speaking to Noah and his sons and giving them the blessing and mandate. He says, now behold, in verse 8. That means there's something important coming. Pay attention. He says, I myself do establish my covenant. And that is a very emphatic language there, stating that God himself, he himself, is the one who is making, initiating, starting this covenant. Three times in this passage he says, my covenant. It belongs to him. He's the one making it up. So what does that word covenant mean? In the Hebrew, it's berit, and it means a pledge or an oath. Covenant is the the best translation, I'd say. And that word covenant, berit, in Hebrew is used seven times in this passage. So that's the theme, the Noahic covenant. Um, This is actually the second time it's used in the Bible. And if you search back, Who remembers where it was? Genesis 6, verse 18. This is before the flood where God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So he's promising that they're going to be rescued from the flood that he's about to bring, right? That's 6.18. So we saw God's grace come to Noah um, in the form of this covenant promise to save him and his family. But that's not the Noahic covenant per se. This one is in Genesis 9. And the definition of a covenant, more if I want to expand on it a little bit, is a binding agreement between two parties that includes obligations and sanctions imposed on both or one of the parties. 
Okay, a binding agreement between two parties that includes obligations and sanctions imposed on one or both of the parties. Okay, so a solemn oath that includes all that in between. A pact, a promise. In this case, God is the one party, and the other party is Noah and his sons. And actually, in verse 8 there, it says, your descendants, right? Which includes everybody to come out of them, which includes all of us here today. So this is called the Noahic Covenant theologically, but it actually applies to all mankind in general. From that time all the way until now, okay, roughly 4,000 years later. And so into the future, okay, until Jesus comes back and the actual end comes. So um, it also applies to every animal that came out of the ark. Okay? You might have noticed as I read the passage, God so specifically includes them throughout the passage. Every living being, all creatures, every beast, they too are recipients of this covenant oath. And uh, I say recipients because God is the one, I said, making the terms. And all mankind and animals are on the receiving end. Okay, we don't have any obligations or actions to take here in this covenant. There's no commands for us to follow in this pact. And so it's known as a unilateral covenant. Unilateral as opposed to bilateral. So unilateral means one way. One way. Action is taken by one party, one side of the covenant only. In a bilateral covenant, there are responsibilities on both sides for both parties. So this Noahic covenant is a unilateral and unconditional one in that God is promising, you look at verse 11, that all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the promise. That's the oath on God's part. Simple, straightforward, and very reassuring, right? (laughs) Maybe especially for Noah and his sons and their wives after being in the ark for all that time, experiencing this this flood, and and now being out of the ark, seeing with their own eyes that all life has been destroyed. Mind you, this is not too long after they've stepped out of the ark. A quick side observation um, regarding the flood here. This promise from God... Uh, is further evidence that the flood was worldwide, that it was global and not local. Because if the flood was just a local event, God didn't keep his promise, did he? Um, Over the centuries, there have been numerous local floods, many of which brought much death and destruction to particular areas, um, death to, to the thousands, even millions, for example, in 1887, in um, the Yellow River flood in China, the death toll was 930,000 to 2 million. Uh, that's, that's the uh, estimate that they made um, since then. In 1935, also in China, called the Yangtze flood, 145,000 people died. And then earlier in history, uh, the flood of 1099 in the Netherlands, up to 100,000 people perished in that one. And then a little bit later, in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the North Sea Flood in the year 1212, 60,000 people died, and on and on. I just, I looked up a a bunch of statistics. So if Noah's flood was a local event like those, 
then God's covenant promise that he makes here means nothing. He says, I'm not going to do this again to the whole earth, right? But if it was just to, to a particular area, obviously this has happened over and over and over since that time. So I want to bring out here that God, okay, one of the principles that we want to understand about God is that he is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And this is the start of his covenant-making. Um, besides the Noahic covenant, there are uh, a few main covenants in the Bible. And I, I want to take a little brief excursus here just to go over them with you very shortly. We could do a whole other sermon series on all these. But um, the Abrahamic covenant comes next okay, in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. The Abrahamic covenant is called that because it's to Abraham. And he promised Abraham to make his name great and to give him descendants from whom a great nation would arise, which is Israel. He also includes in that covenant to Abraham particular land promises and that through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately that comes through the Savior, right? And so um, interesting note on the promised land some of you might be aware that in Genesis 15, verse 18, and also Joshua 1, verse 4, I'm not going to go there, but God actually specifies the geographic land that he promised to Israel. The promised land included, included everything from the Great River, it's called, which is the Nile River in Egypt uh, on the south, to Lebanon, Syria in the north. And then on the west, it's the Mediterranean Sea, and on the east, it's the Euphrates River. Okay, so it's like this kind of triangular shape that God has promised specifically to Israel. And uh, the, the Got Questions uh, website says, quote, On today's map, the land that God has stated that belongs to Israel includes everything that modern-day Israel possesses, plus all of the territory occupied by the Palestinians, which is the West Bank and Gaza, plus some of Egypt and Syria, plus all of Jordan, plus some of Saudi Arabia and Iraq, end quote. So that's the east part of it, where the Euphrates River is. And so, in other words, right now, Israel possesses only a fraction of the land that God promised to them. And it seems likely that the rest of it will be inherited when Jesus returns. And this is going to be in the millennial kingdom. In Jeremiah 31, God gave his word that the nation of Israel will never cease and quote in Jeremiah 31, as long as the sun still shines by day and the moon and stars shine by night. That's God's promise to them. All right, so that's the Abrahamic covenant in a very quick nutshell. The Mosaic covenant is next, given to Moses in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. And it's also sometimes called the Sinaitic Sinai covenant because it was at Mount Sinai. And here God sets the terms of the covenant once again. But he also calls on the Israelites to agree to those terms, which is his law, all the laws that he's given to them. So as his covenant people, the Israelites promise to obey God's laws that he gave. And the principle there is blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so the Mosaic covenant is known as that bilateral covenant where both parties have responsibilities and obligations. Okay? So it's, uh, it's called a conditional covenant. Next is the Davidic covenant. 
In 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 14, Davidic, because it's given to King David, and God promises David there that his descendant would reign as king, and his house and kingdom would endure forever. So this, too, is not going to be fulfilled ultimately until the millennial kingdom, when Jesus returns and his reign on earth will last for a thousand years, And this will lead to the very end where all things are destroyed and the new heavens and new earth and the eternal state will come into being. And then Jesus is going to reign forever. And so this was promised to David that his descendant uh, from his line would come that ultimate king. And that is King Jesus himself. So lastly is the new covenant. The new covenant which is found in Jeremiah 31. If you want to turn there for a moment. Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34 is uh, most specifically where this is found. And uh, you might want to just jot down Ezekiel 26 also. Ezekiel 26, verse 26 and 27. But uh, through the centuries, God's people don't keep his covenant, do they? They break it again and again and again. And so God, through the prophet Jeremiah, makes a new covenant with his people that They will not break. And so I'm going to read verses 31 through 34, just so we just uh, grow in our biblical literacy here. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So those involved in the new covenant primarily, firstly, are the people of Israel. And when we read the New Testament, Romans chapter 11, it describes Israel as the natural branches of the olive tree. The olive tree being an illustration of God's covenant blessings of salvation, even all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. And so Gentiles, it says in Romans chapter 11, uh, are grafted in as the wild branches. And so the spiritual blessings of the new covenant that Israel will receive as a nation are what we just read in Jeremiah 31. In verse 33, it's regeneration, new, new life, Verse 34, the forgiveness of sins. And back to 33, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is where Ezekiel 26, verse 27, makes that a little more explicit. Also Isaiah 59, 21. So spiritual blessings of regeneration, forgiveness of their sins, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And there's also material blessings. And part of the material blessings is those land promises once again. And this is kind of interspersed throughout the, the, the prophets when you read the Old Testament. 
So this will not happen for Israel fully until the millennial kingdom after Jesus returns. But it will happen, and it's a guarantee. And this is a covenant, solemn pledge of God. He's binding himself to it. Meanwhile, we, the church, all believers in Jesus Christ, are greatly privileged to be partakers of these new covenant blessings right now. What do we have, brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we have regeneration, new birth in Christ? Yes. Do we have the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future? Yes, we do. Do we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the ministry, the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit in us? Yes, we do. Over and over and over again, it says in the New Testament about that. So the church is not national Israel, but we get to partake of those spiritual blessings until our number is complete, until God has called every last one uh, to himself and, and the, the end times will come. So the fulfillment of the new covenant will happen when Jesus comes back. Israel is called back to himself and he establishes his thousand-year kingdom on earth. And this is where all the spiritual and the material blessings promised to Israel will be given and received. Okay? I hope that's a clear and, and helpful, uh, concise summary of the, the covenants in the, in the Bible as we see them. But back to the covenant to Noah here and his sons and descendants. Verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Again, God just simply states what his covenant entails. His pledge never to destroy all life via flood again. So encouraging verses uh, such as Matthew 5 verse 45 in the New Testament where Jesus says that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? His common grace, I call it uncommon grace. But listen to this, Psalm 56 verse 8. The psalmist says that you, God, have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I want to just encourage you today, knowing that God oversees every single raindrop and every single teardrop that falls. And he knows, he cares, and he's in control. You can trust him fully. That goes for every one of us personally and all of us collectively. And this is God's universal promise to Noah and his sons and descendants, like I said, of which all of us are, all these thousands of years later. I really love what uh, Spurgeon said here. Quote, he said, It cheered my heart when thinking this matter over to remember that although I depend upon covenant faithfulness, I am not alone in that dependence. For every living thing upon the face of the earth lives by virtue of this immutable covenant of God. Covenant engagements preserve the world from flood, and were it not for that covenant, the tops of the mountains might be covered tomorrow. End quote. Covered with water, right? So let's remember this, that God is not saying that he did something wrong or was too harsh when he judged wicked, evil man with the flood and destroying every person in it, except for those eight. Um, In fact, there is coming a day when God will once again destroy the the earth and the entire universe, actually. 
um, and that's by fire and not by flood. And I think we read that uh, last Sunday or the Sunday before in Second Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the meanwhile, uh, we have nothing to fear okay, regarding the condition of the planet. As Spurgeon noted, it is great comfort to know that God will preserve life on earth from water, from flood. I think that we can extend that promise and that preservation of life from other environmental threats as well. Because in Genesis 8, verse 22, that's exactly what we went over a couple Sundays ago, right? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And we saw God's faithfulness there in keeping his word. So we don't need to fear the end of the world, this climate change alarm, okay, nonsense. And when I say nonsense, I mean lack of sense. And there's no logic or rationality or science to it. Hebrews 1 verse 3, God's word says that King Jesus is the one who is upholding all things by the word of his power. He's got the whole world in his hands, including our amazing planet in the midst of this unfathomably great and vast universe that we live in. It will end when God says enough by the word of his power. And according to his promise, it's, it's going to be by fire and not flood. And that final catastrophe will not occur until after Jesus has returned to earth and has reigned for a thousand years. So listen, the only judgment, the only end that you need to fear is if you are not in Christ this morning. If you are not a believer in Christ this morning, that's the only thing that you, you need to fear today. So I want to encourage those of you who are not yet in Christ of God's first two promises in the Bible. Okay, the first promise, as he said in the Garden of Eden, was if you eat of this fruit, if you sin, in other words, you will die. But his second promise is because you sinned, I will send you a Savior. Okay, So if you're not in Christ this morning, um, accept and believe that promise by turning from your sin in repentance and placing your faith in the one who came and died and rose again to rescue you from your sins. This is a great promise of God. So our first point was God's covenant. And you know what? If God just states something and he declares something and he says that's what it is, I think we can take his word for it, right? But God loves to give us signs, right? He knows that we need reminders. And so the second point is God's sign of the covenant. God's sign of the covenant in verses 12 through 17. And uh, you might have noticed when I, I read it, the, the redundancy, okay, the, the repetition, clearly, repeatedly, um, almost redundantly, God reveals to Noah and his sons what the sign of the covenant will be, right? A bow, a rainbow. And actually, there's a few things that are, are clear from the repetition in these verses, 12 through 17. And one thing is that God, again, is the one who is making the covenant, right? This was already clear from verses 11 through 13, but he keeps calling it my covenant, the second thing is that the sign and the covenant is to last for all time. Okay, the sign 
and the covenant is to last for all time. Verse 12, it says, for all successive generations. Verse 15, he says, never again shall the water become, etc., etc. Verse 16, he calls it the everlasting covenant. And then the third thing that is repeated is that the sign of the covenant, which is the bow, the rainbow, it belongs to God. It belongs to God. In verse 13, he calls it my bow. So it's God's covenant, and it is God's sign, not anyone else's. So what is the implication here? Well, God is therefore the one who defines what the sign means. Okay, he is the one who made it. He is the one who gave it. And so he's the one who defines its meaning and purpose. And simply, as he says, the, the rainbow is a symbol, a reminder to all mankind, okay, wherever he is on the earth, that God will never again destroy all flesh and all life by a flood of water. Okay, that's repeated a number of times. He will not break that promise. I like what uh, John Curid said. Quote, God now provides a physical sign for mankind that proclaims the reality of the covenant relationship. The Hebrew term for sign denotes a visible object that reflects a spiritual reality. It is like a billboard for all to see, end quote. God defines the meaning and purpose of his signs. Okay, so we'll get back to that in a moment, but a quick thought question. Um, were there rainbows before this time in Genesis 9? Was there even rain before then? And I actually have mentioned this before. It's debatable, right, when you, when you read the text. Um, if there was rain before the flood or not, and it's, it's difficult to be dogmatic uh, on one side or the other on that, but God choosing now to set my bow in the sky might imply that there were no rainbows and thus no rain before this time. Of course, on the other hand, there could have been both. <laughs> and, and God uh, could just be saying here, from now on, okay, the rainbow will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So I, I don't think it's uh, you know, a crucial uh, point of doctrine that uh, we need to harp on, but just wanted to mention that. Uh, next, I want to give just a, a brief scientific explanation or facts about rainbows, and uh, Institute of Creation Research is helpful with these things. Um, number one, rainbows are created when raindrops bend, okay, or refract is the word. Uh, sunlight, uh, bend or refract sunlight, and separate the colors so that we can see them. And there are seven basic colors. We all remember this from our childhood, right? Roy, G, Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And these colors form the visible spectrum of light. So Sir Isaac Newton, a uh, brilliant scientist of yonder, is the one who discovered how rainbows are formed uh, as we went over. But he also established that white light is actually a combination of those seven colors. And he used a prism to separate light into its colors. So you might remember from science class uh, a long time ago, a prism is a see-through object that uh, faces that have flat faces that bend or refract the light. And so we see the, the colors inside. So since rainbows are light refractions, 
they will look different depending on where you're standing. And for you to see a rainbow, you have to be, um, the sun needs to be shining from behind you. But depending on your angle, it's going to look a little different. So that's some uh, short, sweet science for you there this morning. But theologically, once again, the reason for rainbows is that they are a sign of God's covenant. God calls it my rainbow and puts them in the cloud after the flood, signaling his promise to never flood the whole earth and destroy every living thing again. What a wonderful, beautiful sight to remind us that God is the creator and that he is faithful. And he's never going to break his word. Rainbows, what a, what a joyful reminder of God's faithful character. We don't get much rain here in Southern California, so we don't see that many rainbows. But every time I do, it just it causes me to smile, puts a little joy in my heart. It makes me want to tell someone, hey, hey, look at that, right? But let it be a reminder to us of, of God, and it belongs to him and what he promised way, way back when. So as we know, some have tried to hijack the sign of the rainbow, the LGBTQ movement, waved the rainbow flag as a a symbol of LGBTQ pride. How did that all start? Well, per Britannica.com, quote, it goes back to 1978 when the artist Gilbert Baker, who was an openly gay man and a drag queen, he designed the first rainbow flag. Baker later revealed that he was urged by Harvey Milk, one of the first openly gay elected officials in the United States, to create a symbol of pride for the gay community. Baker decided to make that symbol a flag because he saw flags as the most powerful symbol of pride. As he later said in an interview, our job as gay people was to come out, to be visible, to live in the truth, as I say, to get out of the lie. A flag really fit that mission because that's a way of proclaiming your visibility or saying, this is who I am. Baker saw the rainbow as a natural flag from the sky, so he adopted eight colors for the stripes, each color with its own meaning. Hot pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for art, indigo for harmony, and violet for spirit. The various colors came to reflect both the immense diversity and the unity of the LGBTQ community, end quote. So as we think about that, dear Faith Bible Church, um, unsaved, unbelieving people can use the rainbow or whatever other symbol for their own sinful reasons. They can try to redefine things as they please, but it does not change the meaning and purpose that God gave it. It can't and it won't. By the way, there's also a Bible translation that came out last year, September 2022, called the Modern Standard Version, Holy Bible Pride Edition. Its front cover is not black or burgundy or brown. It's the color of the rainbow. And worse than that, it changes the verses about homosexuality in particular and even the verses about sin and hell. Um, But... Our point being this, depraved people of darkened minds and souls will try to change what God has said, but they will not succeed. Remember Jesus' words. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, 35. He says earlier in Matthew, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five eighteen and 19. So our job, beloved, is not to hate people, okay, LGBTQ or whoever else, people who attempt to change the meaning of the rainbow, but rather we should seek ways to engage them in order to reach them with the actual good news of freedom and hope and joy and peace, which comes only through Jesus Christ. Okay, ultimately, people like that will change their understanding and their use of the rainbow symbol when they understand and believe those first two promises that God gave to sinful man, right? If you sin, you'll die. But the second promise, because you sinned, I will send a Savior to rescue you. All the way back, Genesis 3.15, which Philip prayed on the promise to send the seed that will crush Satan, sin, and the curse of death. May God allow us opportunities to share this gospel truth in love, as we sang earlier, right? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Well, these final verses here, in verses 14 and 15, um, again, they, they seem to be a repetition of what God has just said in the previous verses. Um, repeated statements in the Bible are for emphasis, okay, for stress. Uh, verse 14 and 15, just a couple highlights to add. He says in, uh, in verse 14 that the bow will be seen. It will be visible to people. Like I said before, God knows that we need many reminders and uh, also perhaps that we are very, very visual people, right? So those things help. Note that there's a rainbow somewhere in the world every single day, okay? So it's seen by someone. Interesting to think about that. The other thing to highlight from these verses, I will remember my covenant, God says. So recall from chapter 8, verse 1, that God's remembrance is not just recollection. God doesn't forget things. He doesn't forget his promises, but that word, zakar, remember, is used to describe God's fidelity, his faithfulness to act, right? Or in this case, to not act on what is remembered. So again, John Curie, the commentator, is helpful. He says, so God is not merely a passive agent here, but is actively involved in sustaining his covenant promises, that's what it means when God says, I will remember my covenant. Okay? He's actively involved in sustaining his covenant promise. Verse 16, the only thing I want to highlight from here is that God, once again, says that it's an everlasting covenant. I've already mentioned that. But everlasting means eternal, right? This reinforces the unconditional and certain commitment of God. It's not going to be revoked. No matter how evil, wicked, depraved, dark man gets, he will not destroy the earth and every living creature by flood again. So the Abrahamic covenant, too, is described as everlasting. So I just want to bring that out. Promises to Abraham regarding the land have not been nullified. None of the promises have been nullified. He calls it an everlasting covenant in Genesis, so he's going to fulfill it. 
Israel will receive the land promised by God. We don't need to fret about things. Okay? So, verse 17. This is uh, an inclusio. Just, uh, he, he's ending the way that he began. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. A note of finality there. Last repetition. And the rainbow is going to be the sign of the covenant that he has declared to Noah and his sons and descendants. So as we start to land this plane, God's character coming to the fore uh, through our verses this morning. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In other words, he is faithful and trustworthy. God never lies. He will never break his word. And don't you love that about God? He never fails in his promises. So application for us is a couple. Trust God more. Trust God with all your heart. Increase your faith in him and his word. The second one is to be like God. Okay? Be honest. Be trustworthy. Resist telling lies and half-truths. Okay? Be, have integrity like God does. Second thing about God's character, which we saw last week, um, life is precious to God, right? God values life. And so he provides and protects it. He promises to preserve life. And this is the theme for today's passage and overlapping with last week. He's a protector. He's a provider. So application for us, once again, is that life should be precious to us. We, as Christians, have high regard for life. All people, all ages, all ethnicities, elderly, unborn, whoever, handicapped, all life is precious to us, and we should treat people that way. Thirdly, he is a compassionate God, okay, merciful and patient to sinners of the world. And so we can keep saying that, right, uh, as we see from the text how incredibly compassionate and merciful and patient God is. But what's, what's the application when we see that about our great God? That we, if we're Christians, are called to be godly. We're called to be Christ-like. So in particular, are you a compassionate person? Are you a merciful person? And are you a patient person? Especially with those who you see who are in sin. Maybe in, in sin in general or maybe sinning against you. Are you, are you compassionate Are you merciful? Are you long-suffering with them? So let me close with what the prophet Isaiah would proclaim over 1,000 years after the flood. His his message overall was one of judgment, but also of restoration. When you think of the book of Isaiah, judgment, especially in the first half, but then in the second half, especially restoration. And whether it's Israel in the north or Judah in the south, The story is that both nations would eventually be destroyed because of their sin. This is the times in which Isaiah was prophesying. But in the wonderful servant song passages, especially in chapters 53 through 56, are messages of hope and deliverance for those who follow the Lord. So Isaiah pronounces that such redemption would occur only through the work of of this suffering servant, the Messiah who is to come. And listen to Isaiah 54, verses 9 through 10, almost a a couple thousand years after the flood. 
For this is like the days of Noah to me. This is God speaking. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. What precious words, verses, promises from God, which apply to all his people, even to us today. His covenant is a covenant of peace for all who turn to the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation. And he will keep us in his peace forever. And the New Testament verse, which we're going to end with, is Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21, which says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, dear church. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And even in its repetition, God, we don't want to miss the point. And you have promised, pledged to preserve your creation. And that was a promise to Noah and his sons and to all his descendants. And that means all the way to us, even today, this morning, in 2023. We're grateful, God, for um, how faithful you are and trustworthy, that your word is true. And we can apply that, God, by um, just trusting you more and becoming more like you in these ways. And uh, thank you, God, for just, just being so wise and knowing that we are a forgetful people. And so just what a beautiful reminder the rainbow is for us, uh, the sign of the covenant that you will preserve life. And this will be until you declare the end and you come back. And we can look forward to Jesus' reign on this earth and into the eternal state where we will worship you and glorify you forever and ever. But again, Father, in the meantime, we do ask you to help us apply your word to be doers and not just hearers. Thank you for your amazing character and that we can emulate you as we strive to live by your spirit, by your word, and by your power, and by your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.